there is sacrifice and it is tough and it's not for everyone. And I suppose, you know, I've always felt that entrepreneurship isn't for everyone and we certainly shouldn't encourage everyone to become an entrepreneur. I think that's unhealthy and unhelpful. But I think social entrepreneurship is kind of a harder form of entrepreneurship in many ways because you're solving harder problems with less money. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders. We uncover the raw, personal stories of the world's greatest business people, the key turning points, biggest challenges, and most valuable lessons from their journeys, so you'll get inspiration and tangible ideas to succeed at life. Today's guest on Secret Leaders is Alex Stephanie, the founder and CEO of Beam, the social enterprise solving homelessness. He's also the former CEO of Just Park, the world's biggest parking platform. Now, solving homelessness sounds like a pretty grand and exciting idea, and it takes a particularly bold and ambitious problem-solving mind to tackle a problem like this. And Alex, just so you know, I said bold, not bald, don't worry. Um, so in today's episode, we're going to get under the skin of the problem and also the business opportunities that arise from solving big societal issues using technology that are usually ignored by ambitious entrepreneurs and investors. So a bit of context for you. I first met Alex probably about 10 years ago or so. It was quite a random connection, but I was starting out in, in startup land for the first time, having come from advertising. And I'd asked in my network, does anyone know anyone um, that works in a startup, runs a startup, or could give me any kind of insight. After many no's, someone's friend of a friend introduced me to this guy called Alex Stephanie, who is the CEO of this small startup called Just Park in Kentish Town in London. I reached out and I think I suggested to you that we go for dinner, um, which is an unusual suggestion. Now I look back on it, I don't suggest going for dinner with randoms. It was more than one reach out, if we're honest. It was a succession of increasingly persistent messages. Sure. No, I wanted to tell it from my, my version, which is obviously I sent one one amazing, incredibly well-crafted message and you instantly said yes. But no, you're right. If I reflect correctly, I think there were probably 20 or 30 to the point where I made it very clear that unless you met me and helped me, um, I probably wasn't going to go away. Does that sound more likely? That definitely rings a bell. So we went to uh, a restaurant and I was like very lucky because I got to sit with my first experience and encounter of someone in a startup and I had a list of questions. For me, it was a really exciting and valuable dinner, um, but I know we've talked about it since and you certainly didn't necessarily understand what was going on or why I needed all these questions answered. It was a bit confusing because, yeah, there was quite a few messages. I didn't really know who you were but you seem very keen to have dinner with me. And I was just really being, I think, kind of humble, just sort of thinking, why does this guy want to have dinner with me so much? You did have hair back then, right? I Yes, thank You're you. Very attractive, yeah. Thanks, thanks for reminding me. And so we, yeah, we went out for dinner, and um, I just sort of thought, well, people have been very friendly and lovely to me, and tech sectors in, in general very lovely and kind of welcoming. So I thought, you know, I joke, it was the, it was the nice thing to do. But yeah, we... Um, we then found ourselves in this kind of neighborhood Italian restaurant and the lights were down and there was a kind of candle and we were kind of looking through the past. I, actually, I don't it think I've romantic. actually ever been on a date in a more romantic restaurant, let alone a business encounter. It was uncharacteristically overly romantic, candlelit, etc. Um, so I probably didn't help set the scene for what I was really there for. That and all my desperate messages. A lot of unrequited love going on, I think, at the time. Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, it was very interesting. But I think the thing that kind of confused me as the, as the meal went on was, like, I didn't really know you, but you sort of seemed to be sort of nodding and sort of looking almost longingly into my eyes at, at some point. And there was a period in that meal where I did actually think you'd invite me out for a date, um, which didn't bother me at all. I was just genuinely perplexed working out, was this actually a professional meal or was I inadvertently on a date with Daniel Murray? And now, now, I, now I think about it, me picking up the bill at the end probably didn't help you figure that out very clearly either. Probably not. I can't remember if we shared a dessert. Maybe we did. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure, but um, I have found the receipt. And if you want to go splitsies on reflection, you know, with pleasure, I can, I can send you a PayPal link. Please do. So we're going to get straight into the, you know, the normal part of the, the interview realm. Don't usually start with first encounters and dates, but I've wanted, wanted to reconnect with you on this show for a long time. So thank you, firstly, for agreeing to do it and sharing your journey with Beam and Just Park. And before we do that, quickfire round. So most important question, cats or dogs? Your cats. Correct. For profit or for charity? Both. Uh, Android or iPhone? spiritually android but practically iphone okay world changing meaningful difficult societal issues like solving parking or the waste of time meaninglessness that you find in homelessness homelessness sorry even though it's not very meaningful i mean you've got to find meaning in everything you do right Fair enough. Yeah, you found a little niche. Yeah, exactly. It's must be hard getting out of bed every day and knowing that you're only trying to solve homelessness. It is, but you know, you find you find a way. Beam has a unique business model for solving homelessness. We are referred individuals who are homeless um, or at very significant risk of becoming homeless from charities and from government. We then allocate those individuals um, a caseworker who works out what they should be doing with their life. That could be anything from becoming a bricklayer to a beautician. The caseworker also understands all the different risks in their life, all kinds of things you can imagine. We work with very high-needs individuals, people who've got all kinds of different addiction issues, mental health issues, self-harm, FGM. We work with people who've been human slaves, tragically, for, for many years. And then the crowdfunding comes in and it removes all of those different financial barriers that that individual face in order to become whatever the career that they're striving to become. And so the public comes and they can donate to specific individuals or like you do, you donate each month and we have an algorithm that moves all the donations around. And then we have a team that does partnerships with employers like Bupa, NHS, Ocado, many others, and allows employers to actually access the talents and potential of um, overlooked individuals. But before we go any further, let me rewind the story a little bit. Now, Alex was initially a corporate lawyer, and during this first job, he was seconded to a charity where he came face-to-face with homelessness, illness, and deportation. It was an experience that opened his eyes to the huge struggles that so many people face every day, even in a wealthy city like London. But after a while, Alex decided that being a lawyer wasn't for him. He just wasn't very good at it, his words, not mine. So he took a leap and became the COO of a small tech company that allowed people to rent out their empty driveways, which grew and became Just Park, and Alex became the CEO. It was a really successful relationship, but the itch to pursue something new and socially impactful led Alex to leave Just Park, and he began a temporary job at a VC firm whilst he decided his next move. Then, one day, 
Whilst he was out making his way home from work, something life-changing happened. I saw a guy that I'd walked past, you know, dozens of times probably, a homeless man who would always sit on the steps of the tube station. And uh, we met eyes and I thought, why not just say hello to this, this guy? Why not just, just speak to him? You know, I've got time, I'm not in a rush. Um, let's see what happens. So probably quite apprehensively, I walked up to him and, and asked him how his day is going. And, you know, we, we kind of exchanged small talk. And he told me that he would sit there because there is CCTV. And that CCTV made it less likely that he would be beaten up. And he also told me that he'd been out of work longer than he could remember. And just to set the scene, he was an Irish man in his 40s, big beard, kind of round-shouldered. And that was the first time we, we spoke. And he spoke a bit about his family. Um, and I kind of understood, I guess, the sort of outlines of his life. And then we would just speak when I would see him, which was a lot of the time because he was out there on the steps almost all the time. I would bring in kind of cups of coffee and get, would catch up. Um, when it was getting cold, I bought him sort of thermal socks. You know, sort of very, very small little gestures that I'm sure other people were, were helping him out with as well. And then at one point he disappeared for about six weeks and I wondered where he'd gone. I um, was kind of worried about him. Um, and then he reappeared and um, I barely recognised him actually because his beard had gone, but moreover, he looked about 10 or 15 years older. And I went up to him and I sort of said, what's happened? Where have you been? And he said, been in hospital, had a heart attack. So we speak and um, I walk home to my flat. And as I'm walking home, I just feel really frustrated with the fact that I've been trying to help this person. Others have to. And he's actually in a worse position by far than when I first met him. And so I began to sort of look at this problem and read more and more. And I realized that there's actually billions of pounds being spent on homelessness. There's more than a thousand organizations tackling homelessness. There are millions of people in London who care about this issue, you being you know, certainly one of them. And yet still, despite all of this, people are literally dying outside of tube stations. And so I kind of began to ask myself, what did this guy really need? And it was pretty obvious that he didn't need another cup of coffee. That was not going to help him. Didn't need another pair of socks. And what he really needed was the, the skills and the support to get back into work and to provide for himself. That was going to cost more than a cup of coffee. But I thought, well, look, what if we all work together? What if we all chip in? What if we could crowdfund those costs? And so it was at that point that I had the kind of I guess eureka moment and I then spent about six nine months talking to loads of different homeless charities talking to people experiencing homelessness in different ways people living in homeless hostels people living on the streets young people old people CEO caseworkers chief execs and so on and I was just so nervous to kind of weigh into this area that I knew nothing about and I was thinking well look the, it's quite possible I could do some harm to some really vulnerable people and so I was just so careful stroke paranoid about every interaction I was having and while I was having all these conversations a charity said to me I know this guy called Tony and um, maybe you should go meet him and she said 
Oh, so Tony lives in a homeless hostel in South London. And um, he told me he wants to be an electrician. So I'm like, okay, that sounds great. Oh, uh, happy to go meet him. So I head down to Tony's hostel and I, I rock up there and go inside and it's not the nicest place um, in the world. It's uh, kind of very cramped, um, you know, beaten up small house. And I sit down opposite Tony and I introduce myself. I say, my name is Alex. I'm starting a new website and we want to raise money for people who are homeless to get skills and want to support people like you into work. Tony had been out of work 21 years. He had spent a lot of his life in prison. He'd been a drug addict, multiple drugs. He'd been an alcoholic and he was estranged to, uh, from most of his family. And, you know, here he was sat there with some, you know, middle-class prick sat opposite him talking about crowdfunding, poor guy. And so he was very, very beaten up by the world and he was very, very quiet, almost silent the whole time. But he listened patiently. Um, I remember, I think he actually only asked one question that day. He goes, may I ask a question? I go, of course, Tony, ask me anything you want. And he goes, I don't understand. Why would anyone help me? As if he'd sort of seen some massive flaw in my plan. And I said, well, look, Tony, I don't know that they will and I'm not going to promise that they will, but I think that there are loads of people out there who really do care about people like you. And I think we're going to see that. And I'm prepared to give this my best shot. And if you are too, let's just go for it and see what happens. And so he looks vaguely convinced um, and he agrees to go with me to a training center in East London where they teach people to become electricians. And we meet this guy who would be his electrician tutor if we can raise the money. We put together a basic website. It's going to cost um, about four and a half thousand pounds uh, to get all of the things that Tony needs. So his training, his tools and uh, all kinds of other stuff. And then I pick up the phone to some journalists and I say, we've got a story here. It's a, it's a homeless man crowdfunding to become an electrician. What would you reckon? And it actually ends up being this massive media story. It's one of the main stories on BBC News, on Sky News, Reuters, The Times, Independent, Guardian, etc. And it's covered, in fact, in quite a few countries around the world. We raise the money that Tony needs. Thinking, OK, that's the easy bit done. Tony goes to his training centre. He gets his City and Guilds qualification. Bit harder, done, tick. Gets a job working as an electrician on building sites. Gets promoted, starts earning more money moves into his own home, is reunited with his family. And his life is just unbelievably better than when we met and unbelievably better than it had been for the previous couple of decades. So I thought, well, look, if we can do that for one person, then what if we can do that for, you know, 100,000 or millions of people? What if we can use the technology and the operational processes to create this same life-changing intervention for, for other people at scale, how does society look different then? Could society be radically different and better and fairer? And that's really what we've been building at Beam for the last three years. It's a scalable model to create what I think of as, you know, social justice and opportunity for all.
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Anyone that's lived in the UK or really anywhere, right, has passed homeless people on the street. The reality, the insight that you've got with Beam is obviously actually the greatest economic opportunity you can give to people is a sense of self-worth and is an opportunity to contribute back to society because really they don't want donations. They want the ability to be in control of their own destiny. They've fallen on hard times. They don't want to be defined by their past. They want an opportunity for the future. That's like the dream, right? But obviously, not everyone is like Tony, and not everyone is ready for that moment in their career because human beings are damaged. We're complex people. We come with very varied pasts. I guess the difficult question I'd love to ask you is, where have you found like you know your most frustrated experiences? Obviously, without naming names, but what has this journey been like emotionally for you, and where people have not embraced like you know Tony's attitude towards it? I think that we typically, or the average person, let's just say, will make the division between people who want to work and people who don't want to work. And if you don't want to work, go fuck yourself. You know, like you're not contributing, you're a scrounger, and I can't help you. But actually, the real divide is between people who have hope and people who don't have hope. I think there are very few stroke almost no one who likes to be dependent on others, who likes to be a source of charity, because that just strikes at the very core of anyone's dignity. People like freedom. Everyone likes being in control of their destiny. Everyone likes having money in their pocket. Um, And so I think we need to sort of rethink how we categorize people, if you like, and think 
somewhat more about how we can give hope. How can we give hope? Because the most fundamental service we provide to people like Tony is offering them hope that there is a place for them in this world, offering them hope that there is a better future that may exist for them and their families. That's the most fundamental thing. And I think what's really powerful about Beam is the fact that it really works through storytelling. So someone is coming to Beam today and they, let's say they want to be a carer, then we can share with them a whole bunch of stories of people like them who have used Beam to successfully get training and move forward with their life as a carer. And that's really, you know, kind of very inspiring um, for us, but, but you know, more importantly for them, it gives them hope. And I sometimes kind of compare this with myself and the way I think about this, I think of it as kind of like a climbing metaphor. Now for people like me and like also probably you, Dan, you know, to achieve what we want to achieve in our careers is a little bit like climbing a big hill. It's kind of tiring and it's a challenge at times and it's a long slog, but it's a fundamentally pleasant activity most of the time and you get to stop and you get to admire the view. But for the sort of people we work with at Beam, it's a little bit more like climbing a mountain and it's dark and it's raining and the rocks are slippery. Now, for decades, we've said as a society to those groups, here are some sandwiches and here are some flip-flops. Good luck. I'll see you at the top. Uh, unsurprisingly, most of those individuals do not make it to the top. But if we give to them the best tools, the best technology, the tools and technology that we would want for ourselves if we were climbing that mountain in the night, then most of them will get there. Most of them will get there. And so we really need to start providing truly world-class services to these individuals because it's what they need, but it's also in the enlightened self-interest of society at large, and it's in the enlightened interest of the economy, because we need to make sure that there are hundreds of thousands of people in the economy who can get the skills they need and who can economically thrive. And we need to make sure that there are not millions of children growing up in workless households. So I guess this is somewhere where I sometimes look to the technology sector with a little bit of frustration because I feel like so much of the talent and the capital has gone into building tech for posh people or for businesses. So much human talent has gone into getting us to click on more ads. So much human talent and money has gone into shaving 35 seconds of the time I can get sashimi to my desk. And it's actually just left these massive holes in the way we work, the way we function as a society. Homelessness is one of them. And these things are gradually you know, getting more attention through the Tech for Good movement. But I think you know, we've just got a long, a long way to go before these attentions are getting, these problems rather, are getting the attention that they, that they need. And one of the observations you've got, obviously, is it is possible to solve these real world problems and make money. 
you know, you've done a great job of educating me behind the scenes on social enterprise and social enterprise models. We've recently had an episode with Alain de Botton and um, Anne-Marie Hooby of Just Giving, you know, talking about for-profit, not-for-profit, but that was more philosophical. I'd love for you to just sort of unpack the business model at Beam and the business model in social enterprise and why this actually should be a call to arms for more people that are interested in in making money, building a successful, financially secure economically valuable pathway in their own lives whilst also lifting other people up too like you're doing so i'd love for you to sort of pitch it like that like you've done to me in the past sure okay well first i'm just going to maybe preempt what maybe some of the people listening to this are thinking which is this guy is helping homeless people get into jobs how can he possibly be comparing that to a tech organization like you know google or delivery or facebook or whatever for some people they just see this as a you know, this is in the charity box. I think that's kind of a myth. Like, actually, if we're going to solve complicated problems, you need technology, you need data, and therefore you need the most talented people. And for me, solving homelessness is no different in that respect to, uh, you know, solving cancer diagnosis or urban logistics. Like, it's a big, complicated problem that needs technology and data. It does not only need technology and data, it also needs human-centered services. But there's a heck of a lot of technology and data that sits behind the operational model that that we are building and continuing to build. So to your kind of question around kind of business models and structures. So um, when I was starting Beam, I was thinking, is this a social enterprise? Is this a charity? Is this something else? I, you know, it was a completely new frontier for me. I began to sort of think a lot and read a lot and speak to a lot of people. And maybe this was where kind of some of the legal training came in handy, but I began to think, well, look, what if we can have the best of both worlds of both a business and a charity? What if there's some way to create some kind of hybrid structure? And so that's exactly what we've done. So when people are supporting the individuals on the platform, they are donating to a UK registered charity called the Beam Foundation. And we have this 100% giving model So every single pound, every single penny that is donated is funding the different financial barriers for the people using the service, training, childcare, transport, all of these things. And we've shifted all of the cost of actually delivering this service into a social enterprise, what I call a social impact business. And that organization, which is paying all of the rent, all of the salaries, including mine, everything, that is an organization that generates revenues by serving government. So we sit down with government, mostly local authorities, but also um, some central government parties as well. And we say, look, the pe- we, we want to help this group of people who are long-term unemployed, who are costing you a large amount of money each year. Why don't you pay us this much smaller sum of money if we're successful at supporting them? And if we're successful at supporting them, it's, of course, great for the individual and their families but moreover it's great for the economy more widely and so that's the business model of the social enterprise and as I say I think it's about the best of both worlds because we're now able to get the governance and the also the tax efficiencies of this charitable structure but we're actually able to shift all of the cost of that into a impact for profit structure that also has the benefits of a business. 
It can be more flexible. It can raise finance. It can access more types of talent. It can issue share options. All of those things that are proven to create growth and scale. And I think the other thing I was thinking about when I was starting this was that actually it's just so hard to char- for charities to scale by their own. It's so, so hard. And if you look at the large charities that, you know, we all think of as, uh, you know, Oxfam or Save the Children or whoever it is, you know, most of these charities are more than half a century old. And I'm just there going, well, actually, we don't want to wait half a century. And it's not even sure that history is going to look the same way in the future as it did in the past. Will it even be possible to build a charity the size of Oxfam in the next 50 years? most of the data would say that it probably isn't. So therefore, if we were going to really create a lot of impact and scale and help hundreds of thousands of millions of people, we had to really leverage the scalability of an underlying business model. Okay, so what's actually surprised you um, about homelessness since becoming deeply involved with it? So what, what do you think most people should know that most people don't? Probably that for every one person you see on the streets, there are about 30 people living in emergency accommodation, like homeless hostels and women's refuges. So really what we all see on the streets, tragic though that is, is just the tip of the iceberg of homelessness. And if you think about that much larger group, then that is about the same number of people as live in Brighton. There is a meaningful small city of homelessness in the UK. I know that you've come across a lot of uh, homeless people with, you know, some obviously stories like Tony's is always going to stick with you because um, it was the first. But uh, if you could just share some of the meaningful stories that can actually paint a picture for people to understand what leads to people being homeless because it's just never as black and white as people assume, right? So any stories in colour you can share there, fascinating for us. Yeah, sure. Every week we have a a meeting called um, Feel Good Friday where people are sharing with the team stories of people using the Bean platform and it's an amazing and very moving meeting. And so... The people doing that frontline role at Beam, we call them operations execs. There's a load of open roles in that in that area of Beam at the moment, actually, for anyone interested. They are doing incredible and incredibly fulfilling um, hands-on work with the with the people using the service. But I suppose the ones that stick in my mind are the ones that I've been personally exposed to. So I talked about Tony. So Tony was in the first homeless hostel I went to. In the second homeless hostel I went to, I met a guy there who was sat at, again, sat at a table as I explained this whole beam thing. And he said, this sounds nice. It sounds really interesting, but it's not for me. I said, why not? And he said, oh, I smoke weed every day. I said, oh, okay. How long have you been doing that for? He said, I don't know, forever. And I said to him, well, look, you're right, you're right, actually. You're right, like Beam's not going to be for you. And this guy wanted to work in construction. He was smoking strong skunk every day. But I said to him, look, I think you're great. You know, you seem like a really nice, really smart guy. And if you can, you know, get clean, then maybe Beam could be for you. And so he just listened to that and he kind of nodded. And, you know, walked out of that, that hostel. Didn't expect to hear from him again. But then about six months later... His um, key worker got back in touch, 
and he'd been clean for about three or four months and he was referred to the service and he got qualified in a kind of digger operator role where he was learning to use um, diggers on building sites, got trained, got a job, got back into work for the first time in years. And that really stuck with me and that really moved me as well because I just thought all it took was this one conversation. All it took was for this man to have a reason to do something or to stop doing something. And he'd just been on this self-destructive path, you know, for years. And at this point in his life, he was, he was in his mid-50s. So I felt like there was this kind of window of opportunity for him that if he'd probably not got a job, you know, within the next few years, he would then be in his 60s and that would have been it. And he would have just spent, you know, the rest of his life just thinking that he'd just been on kind of the scrap heap for, you know, most of his life. So, you know, that sticks with me. And I think, you know, these things are not rare. I can talk about Tony, I can talk about this guy, but like, this is the bread and butter of working at Beam. This is what is happening all the time. And we got a letter that also really stuck in my mind. And this was a handwritten letter from someone in prison. The letter goes, Dear Sir, Madam, could you please send me information regards the employment crowdfunding platform and which areas of Britain's homelessness problem you cover as I do not have internet access here. I'm a resident here and wish to be active upon release in a positive restart to life and that at present have no permanent accommodation lined up. Any helpful information on the above, I would be extremely grateful for. Thank you, yours faithfully. And that really affected me to think that you know, I read that out to the team and, you know, to think that there was someone who was going to be behind bars that night who is probably going to be released soon, has nowhere to go, probably few or no skills to fall back on. And I don't know how he heard about us. We'll hopefully find out soon and we'll reach out. And if we can help him, of course, we'd love to. Um, but that really affects me as well because, again, it's just one of those issues that for too long has been receive so little attention. You know, re-offending is costing taxpayers five, six, I sometimes hear as many, as, as much as eight billion pounds a year. Now, these are really big sums of money, you know, even if you're Rishi Sunak. And of course, the human cost is much greater than that. These are lives that are, you know, lost, you know, sometimes literally. And um, of course, it's terrible for them. And it's terrible, of course, for the victims of crimes. And we just need to be providing services like B to people like this person and making sure that we are giving people hope and opportunity in a way that I just don't think we're doing quite right now. And I think, you know, this is the thing. When you think about 170 people so far, with 300,000 homeless people in the UK and 120,000 of whom are children, presumably the crowdfunding platform just won't be able to help uh, people at such scale because how can you crowdfund all of those people one-to-one? So, I mean, that would be like a naysayer's point of view, right? I'd love to hear the founder's rebuttal to that. Sure. So we don't run this like, you know, your classic VC-backed business where we're just kind of, I think of this as like screeching around corners in a car and, you know, quite a lot of the time, the wheel's on the edge of the mountain and you can look down and see, you know, the shells of burnt-out cars below. So in terms of those metrics, we're not screeching around corners. We're looking for really solid and responsible growth while investing above all 
in, as you say, scalability. So uh, last year, about a person a week would access the site and the service. Uh, this year, we now are serving more than a person a day. So there's significant improvement, but still, yeah, the focus is on building the foundations for growth. And that's investing a lot in internal technology and internal tools, because obviously the process of getting this referral in from government and supporting them with all the different risks in their life, through training, through work, helping them sustain that job is, is complex. So in terms of, I guess, the scope of this, we see expansion in kind of two ways. So the first way is, yeah, obviously geographic expansion. And we have a lot of interest for the service from cities around the UK and also cities in the US who don't know how to support these you know, materially large groups of very disadvantaged people. But then we also think about expanding to support other different disadvantaged groups. So why should we only be serving people who are homeless? What about people like the, uh, the gentleman I read out before who is who will be an ex-offender and who is at risk of homelessness? What about people with different uh, mental and physical health disabilities? What about refugees? What about care leavers? And so on. And we think about how we can build scaffolding for all of these different types of groups. That's the metaphor I use. For me, the scaffolding is really made up of two things. One, it is the training and education um, that can create economic opportunity and resilience. And the second piece is the support networks, the family, friends, the colleagues, etc. And the really interesting and scalable thing about the crowdfunding model is that you're able to fund the training and education, and then you get the support networks from people who are funding these individuals. And we're getting increasingly smart about how we match up the donor with the beneficiary. I imagine some of your listeners now are you know, working in the tech sector, where you want to get to um, in the future is you would be more likely to fund someone who wants to start a career in digital marketing than someone who maybe wants to start a career as a plasterer on the assumption that you have a disproportionate ability to change their life. So, yeah, I mean, I, one of the times we've spoken about this um, without being recorded was when I spoke about my auntie who has yeah, various health conditions, um, including schizophrenia, and has never really uh, had any kind of job, um, has basically been dependent on others her whole life. You know, she's now in her late 60s and it's arguably you know, too late to equip her to be engaged and to and to do things and you know professionally with her life but I do think we can create those opportunities for people like her who are much younger and you know I look at her life and I think that in some respects it is a wasted life and it is tragic um, but I don't think that's her fault I think that's our fault When I have the opportunity to interview entrepreneurs, obviously I always ask questions along along the lines of, you know, the worst days that they've experienced in their life, you know, how they deal with it. It's an emotional roller coaster, obviously being a founder, being a CEO, lonely at the top, all of these things. And obviously being one myself, I really do resonate with a lot of that, right? And then I wonder when it comes to you, your exposure to people with other kinds of really 
severe stories right if you asked what the worst day of your life was to a lot of people on your platform that we're funding you would just get so much perspective that it might make it quite difficult almost to put into context your own version of that and i'm wondering how the context of the people that you meet changes your own view on your resilience on what you think is good and bad and how you handle um super tough days stressful moments etc or if actually you're able to decouple it and you still have all the same mental frailties as the rest of us <laughs> yeah i think i definitely do yes on you know on the one hand you can look at people who've lived through appalling things and it can and at times should give you some perspective on the other hand that is not your life and you can't go through life ignoring any issues you have in your life because it's not as profoundly big and urgent an issue as someone else's so you know i think practically how we think about that is at beam we invest pretty heavily in making sure that people feel well supported and so we have a mental health budget that caseworkers can access if they want to have coaching or therapy or any other type of um, support on that front and they get a certain number of uh, free sessions as well from perkbox which we which we use um then we, we do a whole load of things um different types of kind of group meetings where people can talk about stressful things process them and and so on you know we try and be really open about these things it's can be emotionally draining work as well as incredibly energizing and inspiring work it's inevitably going to be a mixture and um yeah it's my job just to make sure that you know people are people have that support it would be somewhat yeah ridiculous if someone came to me and said you know i'm really struggling i'm really stressed at work and I, and i was just like well look you're not homeless what have you got to complain about yeah no i mean 100% right that would make you a shit leader but the same question i'm saying to you personally which is are you able to say in context yeah actually this is still a terrible day and actually regardless of all of that because you know it's very different like being a bad leader which is what you've just described and being a good enough leader or kind enough to yourself to recognize that same principle because you don't have anyone saying that to you so i suppose i'm quite unsentimental in some ways i know that there is a a way of thought perpetuated by things like instagram that you can do anything with your life and be blissfully happy and experience no stress and just be kind of you know taking selfies from a beach while saving the world i don't really believe in that narrative i think that if you're going to affect real change in the world that's really hard these problems have remained unsolved because they're very hard problems to solve and that actually if you're going to lead well on these issues you need to accept that there is going to be a price of a kind for that and so getting beam started was immensely immensely hard it still is hard it gets a bit easier over time but i think that if you're going to work on a problem that is chronically underfunded and extremely complex and and think it will be anything other than tough as fuck then you're probably kidding yourself. So, you know, the early the early years were absolutely crazy. I absolutely couldn't have done it without my co-founder Seb Barker, who is phenomenal and who has brought a whole load of skills and experience that I don't have. So, his background is in 
working in substance misuse services and drug and alcohol services. And you worked at, um, at the NHS building kind of personalized services and did lots of interesting things. So, you know, couldn't have done it without him, couldn't have done it without our head of engineering, Julian, and, you know, all of the team. But yeah, you know, particularly for the CEO, ultimately the buck stops at you and you've just got to be really resilient and tough about these things. I think, you know, one of the useful things probably about leaving university and going and working in a corporate law firm is that is kind of an unforgiving culture. And there are benefits to having been through that kind of boot camp. You know, there are benefits from being in a culture where people just do expect you as table stakes to be incredibly efficient and incredibly hardworking and to actually not worry at times about, or most of the time, about your well-being and things like that. I feel really nervous talking about these things because I don't want to glorify the kind of workaholic, suffering CEO and hold myself up as any kind of martyr. But I also don't want anyone to think that they can pursue these issues in a meaningful way without an impact on their life that won't always be positive. You know, I think the work-life balance, the you know, mental health is finally on the agenda and that's great. But also, you know, if you look at, you know, whatever, the, the team of people around, you know, MLK, let's say, they weren't going, we need to change the course of history, but... Um, we're all kind of stressed and we've actually worked 65 hours this week. That there was real, and I'm certainly not comparing me to them, but like I'm comparing these tough issues with each other. You know, there is sacrifice and it is tough and it's not for everyone. And I suppose, you know, I've always felt that entrepreneurship isn't for everyone and we certainly shouldn't encourage everyone to become an entrepreneur. I think that's unhealthy and unhelpful. But I think social entrepreneurship is kind of a harder form of entrepreneurship in many ways because you're solving harder problems with less money. So it's Christmas time. If you've been listening to this, uh, you know, almost close to when it's come out anyway. So the top question for most people listening might well be, how can I support Beam and the awesome work that they're doing to support the homeless over this period and beyond? Well, go to beam.org. It's a nice, simple domain. And you can fund the individuals using the service one-off or you can fund them each month And it is a beautiful and uplifting experience because you get to really share these individuals' journeys as they are moving from homelessness and into work. And it's also a super efficient process as well. As we mentioned before, 100% of your donation is reaching these beneficiaries. So it's super, super impactful way to support vulnerable people in, in our communities. So there's that. About one and a half thousand people give each month and a part of this really growing community of people who are really beginning to move a needle on homelessness. But also we have a super cool feature called um, gift cards. So um, if you are like me and you are a bit last minute about what to buy your friends, family or your customers or your team for, for Christmas, you can buy them gift cards. These are sent out either by email or you can print them out. And this is basically making a little donation on behalf of someone else. You can include a lovely little message and then they can go to beam.org and they can actually apply that donation to whoever they like or they can split it between everyone and then they get to share these inspiring journeys of people using the platform. Okay, Alex, and obviously the big question, imagine there's going to be a big poster with an Alex Stephanie quote one day that other fans of your journey in entrepreneurship and 
wanting to step into those very big shoes to fill, going to have on their walls, what would be the big piece of advice that they'll hear from Alex, Stephanie? What have you got to say to listeners? I would say date your ideas. So there's all this huge focus around starting a business and it's this scary big thing. And actually, just don't think about it as starting a business, just thinking about dating your ideas. And I like the distinction between like dating something as opposed to like, you know, this big scary thing of kind of marriage. So, you know, if you've got an interesting, if there's something you're interested in and curious about and thinking one day I might start a business, you know, on that, just like, just forget the whole starting a business thing and just play around the ideas, talk to people, test the products, just date them and keep it super casual, super loose. And if you do end up starting a business, it would just be much easier because you would have taken like all of the fear of this like big step just out of the equation. And, you know, a lot of the most successful businesses, they kind of started in that way. You know, by the time they're actually a business, people are like, oh, I guess we have a business now. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been a massive pleasure having you here. And um, as you know, massive fan of the platform and you. So I'm hoping that everyone does go on and donate to beam.org. Thank you for your time, man. Cheers, Dan. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. You can't help someone who doesn't want help. And everyone keeps saying, you know, that person's just got to reach the low point. But I think when it got to October and the company was shut down, suddenly there's a thousand livelihoods whose jobs all rely on, on DCM. And, you know, you think, okay, well, maybe this is the low point. Let's try and do what we can to kind of save Decium and, and maybe Brandon actually needs some time away from Decium and maybe that will be the low point so he can kind of get the help he needs. That was the co-founder and CEO of Decium, an abnormal beauty company. That's Nicola Kilner, who's joining us in the studio next week for a rip-roaring and really stellar, stunning story that you might well not know about this abnormal beauty company. Tune in or you'll miss out. We want to make this podcast as good as it can be, and we need your help to do just that. So, what do you think would make it better? What conversations should we be having that we aren't? What kind of guests would you like to see us interview that we haven't got yet? Tell us on social or email us on hello at secretleaders.com. Thanks. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. 
This episode was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford, and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.